Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Was Travis Walton really abducted by aliens in front of five witnesses in 1975? Where was he for five days? Why did trees in the area suddenly exhibit accelerated growth? Well, hello and welcome to the 623rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben. You know, I'm Ben. Uh, Ben's work schedule prevents him from being here tonight. I'm going to tell you in a few minutes what we're going to do about that. Uh, anyway, this evening we welcome back an award-winning filmmaker to discuss one of the best-documented cases in UFO history. As always, we welcome your calls. It's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Now, before we introduce our guest, she's on the line. I ask her forbearance because this is a very important announcement. <clears throat> we have, uh, well, we're, we're going to do something about Ben not being here. We have a long time slot on this Monday drive time uh, in the Monday evening here. And as of next week, January 24th, we will be heard on a new day and time beginning at noon on Sundays here on ON 1240. There are three reasons for this move. As I've mentioned, uh, Ben will not have to miss any more shows because of his weekday work schedule. And additionally, we will have our uh, another producer. Usually Ben produces the show on Monday evenings as well. So he's kind of running around answering the phones. But as of Sundays now, uh, our good friend Josh uh, is going to be the producer here. And uh, we're going to have Ben able to fully participate in the show. And I think it'll, it'll really improve the discussion. Secondly, we plan to do some rather exciting on-location broadcasts going forward, and there will be staffing here at WON on Sundays to accommodate that. Uh, thinking particularly of uh, conferences we speak at, we'll be able to do live audience shows uh, from there. Third, because of time zone differences, the Sunday slot will make it much easier for us to host overseas guests. In the, the Monday slot, guests from Europe had to stay up until 1 or 2 in the morning to do live shows with us, and sometimes that's difficult, especially if they're old like me. So it's uh, Behind the Paranormal from noon to 1 on Sundays here on ON 1240, beginning next Sunday, January 24th. Now, finally, to our guest. Jennifer Stein is an artist, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and activist, a state section director for Pennsylvania MUFON, a mutual UFO network, very credible organization. Jennifer is a graduate of the University of Arizona. She has studied crop circles for over 15 years and is a member of the International Crop Circle Researchers Association. Jennifer is also very active in her community in the Philadelphia area, particularly in working for women's rights and against domestic violence. Jennifer's documentary films include dialogues on disclosure, in their own words, with our good friend Kathy Martin, uh, the Peace in Outer Space Treaty, that's a real treaty, proposed to ban all space-based weapon systems, and most recently, the award-winning Travis, the true story of Travis Walton, the subject of our discussion this evening. Uh, Jennifer and her co-producers have shared four EBE awards, and her websites include On Wings Productions, that's O-N-W-I-N-G-E-S Productions.com, slash Travis, Travis dash Walton, if you're particularly interested in this, and a mainline MUFON.com. Uh, oh, I'll let her tell us. <laughs> There's too many dots and dashes in it. So uh, Jennifer Stein, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on ON1240. Thank you so much, Paul, for hosting me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And before we start, I understand that as of yesterday, you won two new awards, was it? Yes. Well, I had won an official selection at a screening in um, the East Village in New York City. Uh, there's a festival every year called the Philip K. Dick Festival. Philip K. Dick was a very famous science fiction 
screenwriter, and there's a film festival in his honor. And uh, the film, Travis, was accepted, believe it or not, to a science fiction film festival. This true documentary was accepted because the topic is pretty far out of the box for most people to really wrap their hands around. So they were thrilled to have the film. So I won an official selection from them about two months ago or so, meaning that they were going to screen the film, and the film was officially selected for their festival. And I won Best uh, Documentary uh, just uh, Sunday night. Well done. As a matter of I have a, a copy of the, the case here. Maybe if I could ask uh, Prevail upon Josh to hold it up to uh, those listening on a computer or some other device have the uh, shocking experience of actually seeing us here in the studio. So if you have that, you'll be able to see the uh, the cover of the uh, DVD case here. Well, very good. And uh, again, uh, well done, Jennifer. Uh, now, I have to tell you, we found your film, Travis, very compelling. Uh, matter of fact, I watched it twice yesterday. Uh, in our opinion, you thoroughly treat the Travis Walton case, and we don't give compliments easily. Uh, you, you treat the investigation, the investigators themselves, the evidence, and you treat Travis himself with great depth and compassion, I thought. Uh, so for listeners who might not be familiar w- uh, with the case, uh, can you review the basics of the Travis Walton episode? I'd be happy to. Um, I'll try to keep it brief uh, because I know people can get more information at the website, and they can also see the trailer online. Um, at uh, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. Oh, okay. That's uh, a website that uh, I hadn't actually broken out as a separate website, but it now is, so anybody listening can go to TravisWaltonTheMovie.com and bookmark that and go back to it. Lots of information about the film is there now. So uh, the basic story, 1975, uh, seven loggers were in the Sitgraves National Forest, which is a very large Ponderosa pine forest in northeastern Arizona actually the largest ponderosa pine forest in the world. They were working on a forestry service to clear underbrush to prevent fires. They create fire barriers in case fire does break out by lightning strikes to preserve the forest and to what they call eliminate the fuel, which is the, you know, the cuttings, the debris, the saplings that are small and on the ground. So if a fire does break out, it doesn't spread quickly and destroy the forest. So they had a contract. Uh, The crew boss was Mike Rogers. He hired a number of guys to work with him. Travis Walton was one of them. They're leaving for the day, uh, throwing their chainsaws in the back of the truck. They all hop in the truck. They're driving through the forest on what they call a logging road, which is not really a paved road. It's basically just a cleared path for the truck. And they see this odd light sort of up ahead of them on a hill as they're heading towards a somewhat gravelly road called the Rim Road, which really, you know, uh, drives through the top edge rim of this area. And they think it's a plane crash or a fire or something very unusual because it's not a normal light. No one lives there. There's no electric. There's no reason for a light to be in the canopy of the trees. And as they get right up next to it, they all look up and all of them see this 20 to 25 foot saucer-shaped craft hovering at about 20 feet off the ground, emanating very unusual yellowish, golden, bluish light and uh, lighting up a good bit of the forest in a very unusual way. And Travis is sitting in the passenger seat. and He's extremely curious. He opens the door, jumps out of the truck, runs about 100 feet up a slight incline, and stands almost right under this craft. Uh, the 
friends of his, the, the fellow logging crew, is screaming at him, like, Travis, like, get, you know, get back in the truck. What are you doing? He um, doesn't want to. He, wants, he figures it's going to take off any, any second, and he wants a really good look at this thing as close up as he can get. Uh, a lot of the boys describe it as looking like, a, you know, a, looking at something they would never see, like a brand-new Corvette or something. You know, it was an incredible piece of machinery. None of them had any doubt what it was. Nobody thought it was Jupiter or the moon. This thing was definitely physical, definitely there, definitely sitting in the canopy of the tree. And it starts to make an unusual noise or rumble. And Travis decides he's going to jump down or crouch down behind a, uh, what's called a slash pile, which is maybe a four-foot pile of logs, maybe that's a four-by-four four or six-by-six six pile, maybe about three to five feet high. It's a pile of wood to be burned in the winter when it snows, uh, when you can protect the rest of the forest from not catching on fire. And he decides he's going to try to hide behind that. While this thing starts to make very unusual noise, it starts to wiggle and wobble a little bit, very low pitches, very high pitches. Everybody gets the sense something's going to happen. It seems like everybody's hair starts to stand on end, you know, and they get this funny feeling in the back of their neck, something's going to happen. Travis thinks, well, I guess I better run back to the truck. This is pretty stupid. I probably shouldn't shouldn't have gotten out of the truck. And he stands up abruptly to run back to the truck. And at the instant that he stands up, he is hit by a beam of light that the boys in the truck describe as like a grenade going off. It's this beam that comes out of the craft. Everyone, including Travis, seems to suspect that it's probably a reaction that the craft is making, maybe even a protective field that hits them. Maybe they don't realize Travis is standing up, um, or maybe it's we, – we don't know why he was hit by a beam. It's all just, you know, uh, subjection on our part or you know, creative ideas as to why this happened. Meanwhile, Travis gets thrown about 15 feet uh, very quickly, very abruptly, literally lifted up off the ground about 15 feet and thrown back very quickly. The boys watch him, you know, land without any attempt to break his fall. And after he lands, he doesn't move. They all assume he's dead because of the force that he's hit with. And they're scared to death, thinking they're next, and they drive away. They slam the door of the truck and they drive away. They get about five minutes up towards what's called the Rim Road. They're panicked. They don't know what to do. The crew boss realizes he has to go back and get Travis. He cannot leave him there. It's his duty. He invites everybody else to get out of the truck if they don't want to come with him. Anybody that wants to come with him should get back in. He turns the truck around and heads back towards the, the scene of the crime. As they're heading back through the forest, they see this craft like they did from a distance, this odd light in the sky, sort of in the canopy of the trees, but definitely not on the ground. And all of a sudden, they see the craft take off. They don't see Travis being abducted, actually. They just see the craft take off. So they know that the craft isn't there anymore, but they don't know where Travis is. They get back to the scene, hoping to pick him up and rush him to a hospital somewhere, and they can't find him. He's missing. He's gone. Jennifer, I'm going to interrupt you for a moment because we have a caller, none other than Kathleen Marden is calling Perfect. in. Uh, Kathleen is uh, the uh, is in the film, 
and she's one of the investigators of the case. She is the uh, daughter of uh, the daughter, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, the famous abductees from 1961. And uh, Kathy, uh, welcome to uh, ON 1240 again. Oh, thank you, Paul. It's great to be back. And hello, Jennifer. Hello, Kathy. So we're uh, we're filling in the listeners on uh, the case for those who are not familiar with it. And uh, why don't uh, well, well, why don't the two of you continue? Uh, this, go ahead, Jennifer and uh, okay, Kathy. I'll, you can I'll, 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 fill I'll in the blanks. I'll wrap it up by saying this story obviously broke in the news as a homicide story, a missing person story, and a UFO story all at once. Because when the boys drove to town and reported it. They reported it as a missing person story because they didn't think anybody was going to believe them. And very quickly it came out that it was a UFO story as well, and they were all suspected of murder because Travis's body was missing. So you can imagine it made international news, the phones rang off the hook, it became one of the most well-documented UFO stories of all time for a lot of reasons which we can discuss further throughout the show, and um, it's still one of the best. Okay. Well, now, Kathy, uh, certainly come in here uh, with, with the uh, answer to this question. Um, am I wrong in, in saying that uh, the number of witnesses of to this incident, uh, lie detector tests, things that so-called, things of this kind, uh, make it sort of stand out among abduction cases in your experience? It absolutely does. The, the, the weight of the evidence is in the fact that the six witnesses all took lie detector tests. They were under suspicion of having committed foul play, and uh, they had to take these lie detector tests in order to clear themselves. And one of the questions was asked uh, was, did they see a UFO? And uh, so they had to pass that part of the test as well. And uh, all but one passed the test with no evidence of deception. The one who failed, failed because he walked out of the test. He was a young man who uh, had, was not getting along well with Travis, who was clearly under suspicion, who had a criminal record, and uh, who was uh, simply uh, adverse to the idea of taking the test to begin with. Later on, Years later, he did take another lie detector test and passed it. Oh, okay. So this was, um, this was extremely important evidence, that not only did the witnesses testify, but that they passed lie detector tests as well. And the chance of doing that, of everyone of these uh, five passing, was uh, about 1 in 28,000. So uh, it was it was highly significant. Mm. And uh, in all these years since 1975, has any of the witnesses uh, retracted their story or changed it? No, they have not. They continue to to uh, support Travis and continue to stand by their statements. And Travis still lives in that area of Arizona. Is that not correct? That is correct. Okay. One of the things that uh, occurred to us as we watched the film, and this is a question for either of you, of course, is uh, did any, now, given the fact that it's very rural, 
uh, in this vicinity. And a lot of New Englanders have never been to Arizona don't know what rural is. Um, the idea is that has, were there any other reports from any other observers of a UFO that evening in that vicinity, granted that it's, there may not have been anyone in the vicinity? Why don't you take that, Jennifer? Okay. Um, actually, there was. And this particular witness um, was only discovered by uh, uh, some of the Paramount crew when they were considering and when they were in the process of making the film uh, that Paramount made about this story called Fire in the Sky. Fire in the Sky, yeah. There was a gentleman, actually, who worked for the FBI. And he was on an adjacent hill camping with his wife. He was a hunter. And he had high-level security clearance, and he was uh, his identity as uh, employee of the FBI was not known. So for him to come forward to acknowledge that he had seen the same thing that these boys reported would have blown his cover, potentially. Um, and he did not come forward but was sort of told by his superiors, lay low, if they get convicted of murder, then you can come forward because it will be important for the veracity of their story. But once they decided to do the lie detection tests, and they all passed, basically, except the one who uh, was incomplete. Doesn't mean he failed. He just didn't complete the lie detector test. Well, just one of the, of the seven. Or, I'm sorry, one of the six who took it. Travis made up the seventh member of the crew, and, of course, he was missing. So there was one other witness. Um, there was a number of other sightings that happened over a period of years in that area. And in fact, Travis's family had seen and witnessed some unusual things over the years um, as well. But that particular night, uh, this FBI agent was the only witness to this actual craft that we know of. Okay. The the idea that um, the FBI may have had a hand in some of this or other government agencies uh, is brought out in the film and uh, the, the, as I recall, the uh, skeptics uh, are led in some ways, at least as you present it, Jennifer, uh, by Phil Klass, who was um, Stan Friedman has been on the show a number of times and has mentioned Phil Klass. And there no love lost uh, there, you know, the, the late Phil Klass, I should say, who was a, a leading debunker of UFOs in the 60s and 70s and beyond. What, pl- what part did he play? when this became a public story? Again, either Jennifer or Kathy, whichever you... I've got to defer to Kathy on this one. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, Philip Klass entered the scene um, not too long after the incident occurred. I believe it was in... And if I may, Phil Klass was at the time an editor of Aviation Week magazine. Is that correct? Yes, he was. Okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. And uh, he... Uh, clearly did not believe that UFOs could be real. He referred to um, anyone who did uh, report an experience as a kook, a crank, a hoaxer, or someone who, if they were a police officer, for example, was misidentifying natural phenomena. He would not entertain the idea that any of this could possibly be real. So he set out to disprove it. And that's what he did in this case. Incidentally, he never did once interview Travis Walton. Hmm. He went after the weakest link, the youngest member of the crew, and uh, attempted to co-opt his testimony 
against Travis in order to destroy this case. He looked uh, hypothetically for situation after situation that could possibly have occurred. And he spoke to police officers. He found a police officer who uh, was highly skeptical about this, too. And he played upon that police officer's words. And uh, when you look at the evidence, you find that the evidence is not consistent with uh, the statements of this police officer and of Philip Class. Let me give you an example. Police officer said that uh, when this, uh, they went out to look for Travis on the night of the event that uh, Mike Rogers, who was the uh, owner of the company uh, that Travis worked for, and he drove to Travis's, Travis's mother's summer home to tell her. The police officer said that Travis's mother seemed rather nonchalant. She uh, wasn't at all disturbed by this, and then that was an idea that Phil Class promoted. The fact is that she was so distressed by this, that she couldn't drive back. She asked Mike, Mike Rogers to drive her back to Snowflake, Arizona, to her winter home and to her daughter's house where she could use a telephone to call her son in Phoenix and have him drive up immediately. This woman was very distraught, uh, according to all of the other witnesses, except for this one police officer who seemed to be working in concert with Philip Class, But that is something that is presented as evidence over and over again that this didn't really happen. Philip Class developed the scenario, and his scenario was that she was hiding Travis out in this cabin uh, and that uh, Travis was in there uh, injecting LSD, of all things. Why did he say that? Because there was a little mark on the inside of Travis's elbow when he was finally returned uh, five days later and finally underwent uh, a medical examination. Well, the funny thing is that mark was not even over a vein, but Philip Class had to come up with some explanation. And that was that, well, he didn't hit a vein, but it went into the muscle that would have been slower in entering his body, but he uh, tried to promote the idea that Travis was perpetrating a hoax, that he was hiding out in this house, using drugs in his mother's presence, and his mother was uh, working in concert with him to perpetrate this hoax, as was the rest of the family. During the investigation, we find out that Travis, his mother, his brother, and everyone involved on Travis's side of this case were willing to undergo lie detector examination. Uh, Philip Class was asked to undergo one. Did he? No, he did not. That police officer was asked to undergo a lie detector test. No, he wasn't interested in taking it either. What does that tell you about the case? I don't know. I hate to say this, but we have to take our break. And we have Stan Friedman waiting on the other line. So I, we can only take one caller at a time, Kathy. It breaks my heart, but I'm going to have to say goodbye. Okay, goodbye. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for calling you. in. We'll be talking to you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. 
Okay, folks. Well, uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal on WON 1240 in Rhode Island's beautiful, New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And uh, Paul Eno hosting alone tonight. And we're going to be uh, going right, I think, right back to the show. Uh, we're not going to be going back to the let, Let's, we do, we got a promo to do? Okay, let's do that, and then we'll come right back. Stay tuned. This is Bob Vila, and my daily home improvement tip will help you keep those little problems around the house from becoming big ones. The Bob Vila Home Improvement Tip of the Day can be heard Monday through Friday at 145, right here on ON 1240, WON Socket Radio. And it's brought to you by DNS Painting of One Socket. Give Ron Nichols a call at 401-339-4625 for your free estimate today. 401-339-4625 for DNS Painting. Well, welcome back to the show. We'll leave our announcements till the end, particularly our charities. And uh, we're very happy to have with us uh, the great Stanton Friedman, uh, probably the biggest name in, UF, in ufology and uh, flying saucer research. Uh, Stan, welcome back to the show. Glad to be on. You mean I'm one of the oldest guys around. That's what's going well, on. Well, as you and me both, my friend. Okay, so Jennifer, um, we've been talking, of course, about this case. I don't know if you've been listening, but uh, we've gotten to the no. point... We've gotten to the point that uh, Kathy Martin explained uh, much of the uh, the Phil Class situation, uh, the skeptics, yeah. uh, what happened with Travis as far as the whole the, the way the story broke, UFO, uh, homicide rumors, this sort of thing. So now we might get to the point, uh, Stan, uh, of uh, perhaps what you might think about what happened to Travis while he was gone for five days. What well, was that? Travis and I have talked about this, and I, I must admit that I was one of the first to investigators to talk to Travis way back in 1978. We were filming UFOs Are Real, uh, and uh, we visited Travis in Snowflake, Arizona. Then we went out to the actual site uh, and interviewed him and Mike Rogers. And along the way, we were talking to people in the town, looking for some sense of whether people thought that Travis was a liar, a kook, or whatever. Uh, you know, small towns, uh, your reputation gets around. If you're a bad guy, people know it. And we didn't find any sign uh, of that at all. And the I was intrigued with Travis because he was obviously a sharp guy. And I was particularly intrigued. Uh, we talked later on about the possibility that he was actually uh, like a animal hit by a hit-and-run driver. Uh, you know, he was zapped, I think, probably automatically. The saucer was there. Would, would it be surprising if they had sensors monitoring the area for anything that moved? Wouldn't be surprising to me. Uh, you're out in the middle of nowhere. You've got to be a little bit careful. And when uh, talking to Travis, there, there were a couple of things early on that really got to me. One was his description of that big guy that was in the other room when he got up from the table. And his comment was he would pass uh, here on the planet. So and there were, if that, I may interrupt, there were there were reports of the, the usual gray type small beings, as yes. well as very human like uh, beings as as well. Yeah, well, it was the gray ones weren't a surprise. Little guys, Travis is big, six two or so, uh, and he goes outside and here's this guy as tall as he was, and. Uh, not answering his questions. And Mike, I talked to him at one point about the fact that 
you know, if you're driving down the road out in the country and you uh, hit a dog that goes across the road, you're probably, if you're a good guy, you're going to pick up the dog and take him into the nearest farmhouse uh, and see if you can provide any help. Well, in Travis's case, I think they zapped him, uh, probably unintentionally, and then said, oh, darn, uh, let's pick him up. <laughs> let's fix him up. And, you know, he was very uncomfortable. He was in pain when he got up from that table. And remember, the surprisingest thing, if I can make up a phrase, was that he thought only a little time had gone by. When he got back, it was five days, you know. And mm. it was only when his brother said, look, feel your beard, and holy cow, where did all that growth come from? So that, that's why I say that it makes sense to me that he would have been, I'll call it zapped for one of a better phrase, and that they were trying to bring him out of that. You know, it happens to people all the time. They, a, a lineman gets zapped on a power line, falls off. Uh, he's got a problem. You've got to do something with him and do it now. You can't just lay him, lie him there and lay him there, whatever. Well, Stan, so, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I've met his wife, I met his kids. This is back in 1978, you understand. And we filmed the section uh, for UFOs Are Real. And I've seen Travis a number of times since. We even did a joint lecture at a casino of all places hmm. in Monomen, Minnesota. Uh, we'd never done that before, but they wanted the two of us to give one lecture because they had a lot of speakers and so forth. And we did a nice job. We fit quite well. My whole approach to Travis is I can find no reason to think that he is telling anything other than the truth. Okay. Does he have the whole story? Well, he was out of it for some days, so who knows what happened then. You know, uh, it wouldn't be surprising he, when he was hypnotized. They never got five days' worth of stuff. So, you know, if you get hit by a car, you're probably going to be out of it for a while. If you get zapped hard enough to move you through the air several feet, uh, that's pretty rough. Well, that's so it. I could find no reason not to believe Travis's story. And I'm a fairly critical guy. Mm. And as people know, there are a lot of people I don't believe. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Bob Lazar and plenty of others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Travis has always impressed me. Uh, he's a sharp guy. I, I had people tell me, oh, he couldn't have written, written that book. He's just a country guy. Well, he's not just a country guy. You talk to him for five minutes and you know that. Listen to his language. And we, we find him very intelligent and a real gentleman as yes. well. Yes, yes. And I'm also impressed, I, I have to say this. When I first met him, I realized, I found out that he had delivered all his kids. I didn't and know that. Having been there when my daughter was born, it was the, the premier event of my life, really. Yeah. There was a doctor there, but at least I had taken the training and so forth. Uh, I, it says a lot about Travis uh, and his kids. He, I've met uh, some of his kids. Mm -hmm. So I'm favorably impressed, and I get awfully sick of all the attacks. Uh, Kathy told you about Phil Glass. Mm -hmm. uh, let me just 
point out one example of Mr. Glass's lack of devotion to the truth. He was objecting to uh, Majestic 12, and he pointed to one document, the typeface is wrong, that's uh, pica type, it should have been elite type, the NSC only used elite type, he said, and I'll give you $100 each for every genuine document you can provide that meets certain criteria at the same type and size Pike, type, and you know the crazy thing is, I he had never been. I found out that he had never been to the Eisenhower Library. <laughs> uh, they had two hundred fifty thousand pages of NSC material. The notion that you can take—he had nine documents which he'd gotten by mail, mind you—and I was going there. So to make a long story short, I uh, got fourteen documents that were done in the same size and style Pike type and sent them copies and an invoice for $1,000, because he offered me $100 each up to a maximum of 10 unfortunately. He sent me a check, got very angry when I published a copy of his check, and at the uh, American Philosophical Society Library, where his papers are, there is no Friedman file. We communicated for 20 years. I wonder why he didn't want people to know about that. Hmm. Uh, so what I'm saying is it shows a lack of honesty. If you'll make a charge, you're supposedly a serious investigator. After all, you work for Aviation Week and Space Technology, and you make a charge having no basis at all. Well, that was par for the course for Phil Clash. And there are many other examples, and Kathy and I have talked we're talking about this in a book we're working on, but... Uh, you know, people need to know that there are people out there who have their, an agenda which says there cannot be flying saucers. And if the first explanation doesn't work, try a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, because there cannot be flying saucers, which is nonsense. And also that there can't be a cover-up. Uh, and Phil even went so far in one of his books to say the ratio of believers to non-believers is about 1 in 11. Well... All the polls show that the believers outnumber the non-believers. Mm -hmm. That's true. But Phil had no qualms about making that false claim, and there are a zillion others. So I, I just watched, uh, he and I were on, uh, oh, what's his name, uh, Ted Koppel, Nightline, many mm. years ago. And he went at the same things the same way, false claims vigorously. So, you know, uh, if that's the best anybody can do to attack Travis Walton, is to quote Phil Class, then we know they're uh, reaching pretty far because Phil has lied consistently about UFOs. And I say that seriously. I mean, we've done debates. Uh, and the man, I, I'm not saying I know why he is taking this stand. You know, is he being paid by somebody? Maybe a lot of our listeners don't know that back in the early 70s, there was a thing called the Church Committee, uh, Senator uh, Frank Church. It was hearings on the CIA and the press. And everybody was shocked to find that the, over 300 journalists uh, were reporting to the CIA. Mm -hmm. Jennifer's film refers to that in this case. What? No, I'm saying Jennifer's film refers to that in in, yes. in this uh, Walton case. Yes. Well, I, I mentioned it only that 
to say that anybody who thinks there haven't been journalists who had more than one master is wrong. Mm. Well, that's it. Well, Stan, one thing, and, and Jennifer, jump in here. I mean, you're, you're, you're the guest here, okay, so feel free to jump in. But I wanted to point <laughs> out to Stan, no, not at all. Uh, Stan, everything you, you say is worth hearing. Uh, Stan, you're a nuclear physicist, and one of the things that Ben and I noticed about this case was that uh, it was, was a question that arose, where was the craft while Travis Walton was in it, okay? If it were bombing around the stars somewhere, you might have had the relativity theory kick in and, and he wouldn't wouldn't have aged, but he had five days growth of beard. So indicating yeah. to us anyway, our untrained minds that he perhaps was hanging around. The craft was hanging around somewhere within uh, nor at normal speeds. Otherwise the time would not have passed as he, you know, equally for him as it did for everyone else. What's uh, what's your thought on that? Where, where well, was my it? My comment is that uh, I've always talked about there being motherships and little Earth excursion modules. And so, in other words, between the stars, where there ain't much of anything, man, <laughs> mm. you have a big mothership. And once you get to a planet, you dish out your little Earth excursion modules, and they run around and do their thing, you fly around and come back, and you go back to the next stop on the, on the, <laughs> the roll of where you're going to go. And the example I used, to, uh, we do the same thing. We have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, huge monsters, over 1,000 feet long, that carry about 75 little jet planes. And you know what? The aircraft carrier can operate for 18 years on nuclear power mm -hmm. without refueling. The airplane can operate, what, two hours on a, a jet engine? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, depending. Yeah. Without refueling, well, between an hour and three anyway. So what I'm saying is, if the, the Travis's vehicle was not a mothership, it certainly didn't sound like it was that big, even when he was walking around on board and when, they, when the guys saw it. You know, 50 feet probably or something like that. And so... What I'm suggesting is either they went back to the mothership where they have the medical center. What do we do with these damn earthlings who get in the way? Yeah. <laughs> and they take care of them, and then they, they head back. Is he ready? Yeah, we've got him as well as we can. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, and so I don't think they went off to the stars. And, you know, it's a mistake that we hear about many times. I get people professors who act as if if aliens are coming here they come here then they go back home then they go someplace else then they go back home my longest lecture tour i did 25 lectures in 35 days in 15 states you know what i left home i went from point a college a to college b to college c etc etc and at the end of the whole list i went back home one trip with a lot of different stops. So I don't think when you're exploring, uh, Magellan went around the planet in three years. His ship did. He didn't make it. And they made lots of stops along the way. They didn't go out and back and out and back and out and back. So I think that they put him in the sick ward, looked after him, took him back when they could see that he was finally ready, they might have even put him intentionally in a coma. We do that. 
mm-hmm. you know, when people are in bad shape and they need some healing time. Uh, so I don't think he went off to uh, Zeta Reticuli or anyplace else. Okay. I think he was in the neighborhood. One of the things that Travis mentioned in an interview with us uh, 2013 was something we had never heard before, and that's his opinion, perhaps. And uh, Jennifer, maybe you have a thought on this too. Is that uh, they may they being whatever was in this craft might have been trying to help him rather than do medical experiments, as is the common perception. Well, I think so. You know? I agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, wh- please extrapolate if you wish. Well, like I said, you hit a dog, and somebody—you're a kind person, and you gotta fix them up and and throw them back. Mm -hmm. Okay. What I'm suggesting is that his being zapped was not an intentional attack on Travis. Mm -hmm. I think he got so close that he triggered his sensor and zappo. Oh darn! What was he doing down there? Why did he get in the way? Remember, they were calling Travis to come back to the truck. And he suddenly realized that uh, maybe that wasn't such a bad idea, and he stood up, and then Zappo. So, who knows what's going on? I, that was one of the, my first questions to him. Is you know, well, and he agreed when I suggested, and I'm sure he's heard it from other people that he was rescued and put back together and tossed back, catch and release. Okay. What do both of you think about this? Uh, how accurate is the film Fire in the Sky? That's not. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, good. Well, that, okay, that, that's a simple answer. I I, I will agree as okay. well. Not. All right. It did get international attention drawn back yes. to Travis's story, and for that it was good. But they really changed um, the story, and unfortunately, Hollywood changing people, a story. I can't conceive of that. Yeah. Too many people remember the wrong story, which is partly why I made this documentary. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before Jen got it right. Oh well, that well coming from you, Stan, that, that's good. Now, uh, before we burn up the rest of this hour, which we're doing, I want to give Jennifer a chance to talk about where she, people can get the film and more about herself. And Stan, also, I'd be curious to know about the book um, you, you and Kathy are working on. Jennifer, you go first. I'll tell people it's really simple, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. They can go there. They can, um, you can buy a, a DVD. It's 20 bucks uh, if they want to buy one. Um, and I'm hoping that I can start to market this film. Uh, I'm, I'm re-editing a new version of it, and I'm hoping to begin uh, the marketing steps to work with a distributor and try to sell it to a network, uh, maybe do some international distribution with it. It's won seven awards and counting. I just won one last weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Stan doesn't know this. We won at the Philip K. Dick Festival this weekend in New York City in the East Village, which was a lot of fun. And uh, I was surprised because that's a science fiction uh, festival, but uh, they loved the film. And it just continues to get acknowledgments in mainstream film festivals, which is also very important, not particularly sci-fi or UFO film festivals. It's getting acknowledgments from the mainstream, like the Burbank Film Festival, Long Island Film Festival. These are, these are really great honors, and um, it's been accepted in a number of others that it, where it's going to screen, like the Sonoma Film Festival in uh, northern Arizona. So, I mean, I'm sorry, no, northern California. So we're very excited about the future of where this film is going. And oh, yeah. I'd really love to express my gratitude to Stanton because he helped me so much in, in um, just putting me in touch with people who had archived footage and uh, 
helping in negotiations for this and really guiding me and giving me his honest opinion, which I so appreciated, and his critiques throughout the project. Stan is actually one of the associate producers on the piece. Mm-hmm. Very good. And, um, I'm so grateful and still grateful for Stan's help. Thank you. Thank you deserved you. it. Well, that's wonderful. Stan, uh, do you feel free to talk about the book you're working on with Kathy Martin? Well, I can't say much because we've agreed with the what we hope will be the publisher, and we don't have the final word yet. Yeah. But it's synthesizing a lot of information to make it utterly clear to the unbiased observer, if we can find any, that indeed our planet is being visited, there had, we're not talking conspiracy. We're talking about there has been a serious and easily documented effort to cover up what's been going on, a cosmic Watergate. And so we'll cover, we'll also be looking at personalities. You see, I have to ask, why does a Phil Class do what he was doing? Why do some of the other nasty, noisy negativists, as I like to call them, what was their game? Why? I mean, look at Ed Condon. If you look, I'm a physicist. I respect Ed as a physicist. There are very few people that have served as the president of the American Physical Society, the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or elected to the uh, American, uh, well, it's a fancy, Academy of Sciences. Uh, You know, prestigious guy. Now, why did he do such a lousy job? Uh, he was known as a courageous guy. He did battle with the people trying to control all nuclear research. And, you know, he was really a top-notch scientist. So I have trouble. I'd love to see a Ph.D. thesis done about why. I can understand Donald Menzel. He worked for the NSA for 30 years, uh, which nobody knew about until I stumbled across it by accident <laughs> by mm. going to the Harvard Archives and came as a real shocker, uh, developed an appreciation for him after finding out that. But So why Condon? Why Class? Now, I did find out one thing about Class you might be interested in. He worked for Aviation Week, and I mentioned the church committee with all these hundreds of journalists who were reporting to the CIA. Uh, and it turns out, that the editor of Aviation Week and Space Technology found out that one of his reporters uh, was talking to the CIA, and he fired him. So Class would certainly have been extremely cautious to make sure nobody found out about that. Since you... So, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, since, uh, since that subject has come up, I wanted to ask about the, the $10,000... Bribe, bribe that came up in 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 Jennifer's film. Uh, can you talk about that? Well, it's not that I don't know any more than she does. I'll tell okay. you that. But it, I wouldn't put it past Phil at all. Uh, not seriously. Uh, he's the kind of guy who had a goal, and it would lie, misrepresent. There's a long history of this. This is not a one event. The, the Travis's case isn't the only one that he lied about. Uh, and you always have to ask, why? Okay. Was he tr- doing it for somebody under orders? You know, he'd be a perfect guy. He, he didn't get married until he was 60. He traveled enormous amounts over in Europe to conferences and other things. 
perfect guy for the CIA to use as a spy, so to speak. Uh, he would know what Americans were saying, things they shouldn't, when the Russians were around and the other way around. Hey, what did the Russians say that we need to know? He, he, you know, and he was in space and uh, advanced technology, so you need somebody in that area. When I used to deal with the Battelle Memorial Institute way back in the early 60s, and I visited their files, they have the biggest files of Russian stuff you can believe that anybody had. And I found that there were frequently reports, observations by people who'd been present at a meeting, at a conference, or anything else. Just in the files there for anybody who needed to know. Uh, I had a clearance for what I was doing, and so I, I got to see some of this stuff. And so there's no question that it would be normal to take advantage of somebody who has a legitimate in to be where important information might be presented. And so Phil would be ideal for that. He was a fast typist. He was a good writer. No question about that. Uh, but I'd love to see a Ph.D. thesis when they looked at the, I'll call it the evil side of Phil Glass. Because <laughs> there was one. Yeah. Well, Stan, where can people find out more about you? Well, the easiest thing is just to go to my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. And Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. It lists all my books. It gives a bio. Uh, you can find out all kinds of stuff about me. Excellent. And let us know when the, uh, you're ready to talk about uh, your new book, and uh, we'll have you, you and Kathy on. And uh, Stan is the author of the foreword to our book. Ben and I wrote uh, Cosmic Journey oh, yeah. coming out from Schiffer next year. And uh, uh, so Stan is um, a very wonderful and helpful guy, and as well as the, the most intelligent voice in <laughs> UFO research, I believe. So with all those compliments, I'm going to thank you for calling in. Stan, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Very good. Bye, Jen. Bye, Sam. Okay, Jennifer, we've got uh, just a few minutes left here. We'll let you have the last word, uh, again, about the film and um, the experience of making it and, and the, the credibility of the witnesses. If you can sum that up in a few minutes, that would be great. Wow. Um, that's, a, that's a mouthful. I can <laughs> say it was a real great honor working with Travis and the other men and crew. Um, they're such genuine, down-to-earth people. And their lives were really destroyed by this. And I hope that I brought out the true reality of the impact that this sort of event has on families and people. Um, it's not really a UFO story. It happens to involve a UFO of incident, but it's really a personal uh, journey story or a personal experience story, personal interest story. And that's why I think the film is doing so well, and it's being accepted and watched by people who would not normally watch a film about a UFO topic. Mm -hmm. um, and that was my goal, to make a film that was a breakthrough film that could go mainstream and help to shift and open consciousness. Very because good. if we're going to continue to judge and point the finger and cast doubt on this subject amongst ourselves as human beings and be critical to others who are, have the bravery to come forward and share their experiences, we're continuing to keep our heads in the sand, like ostriches. They yeah. say, no, you know, I don't want to, don't tell me this, it has to be wrong, it's not possible, so if you're lying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm hoping that this film can, you know, start to break open that, that crusty eggshell that we have around our uh, neat little package of the, uh, you know, 
okay. idea of what the nature of our reality is. Very good. Okay, well, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much, Jennifer Stein, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on the air. Very good. Okay, uh, folks, we better start our announcements here. Uh, we're rapidly booking for our 20, I should say 2012, right, 2016 public appearances, and we've even... Uh, we're even speaking at a charity event for retired thoroughbred horses. That will be in Connecticut in July. Uh, a friend of mine suggested we speak about horse whispering, but I don't know. Uh, so far, the first event of the year will be on Saturday, February 13th, less than a month away, the Book Lovers and Local Authors Expo at the Cumberland Public Library in Cumberland, Rhode Island, right here in our local listening area. There will be no presentation, but uh, there'll be a meet and greet, and uh, we'll have books for sale. Uh, find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com. And uh, that's a place where you can find out more about what we do and our articles, things of that kind, and uh, lots and lots of free recorded shows, over 650 of them. Now, a uh, special interest to folks here in uh, the ON 1240 listening area is uh, another book that came out, I guess it must be up to a year ago now, UFO Repeaters, published by Tim Beckley's company, uh, Global Communications has an entire chapter on our old friend Joe Ferrier, talk show host here on ON for over 50 years and a very famous 1960s uh, publisher and researcher of UFO material. It's, a lot of people didn't realize it. Well, people around here knew that, but a lot of people out there might not. So uh, all three books uh, that uh, relate to that uh, of um, books of interest to the local area uh, are available um, from Global Global Communications Publishing or Amazon.com. You can check uh, check that out. Now, as we've said, uh, this is the last show we are doing on Mondays in this time slot. The next show will be January 24th, Sunday, noon to 1 p.m. Uh, as I say, that'll make it easier for Ben to be here uh, and to participate fully because I'll have our own producer then. And uh, that will also... Uh, allow us to do a number of things we can't do in this time slot. Uh, now, on the 24th, we will open that our appearance in that slot with an open line show uh, to delve further into our ever-growing stack of listener emails. Uh, and we uh, also invite you to uh, check out our main w website, which is newenglandghosts.com. We don't often mention that, but you don't have time to, but that has a lot of interesting material that you won't, will not find on BehindTheParanormal.com. It's got a lot about individual cases we've worked on, I've worked on over the years, and then Ben joining me in 2005. And I think that uh, people would find that very interesting. There are photographs. Uh, we're going to be working more on the site to expand it. Uh, cases uh, take place not only here in New England, but all over the country, uh, Puerto Rico, the Caribbean, and uh, stuff we've done in England as well. So you'd find that quite interesting. And it's uh, got a different look to it. You might find it uh, uh, interesting to check that out. So I will leave you this evening with a quote from a person or persons unknown. We learn something from everyone who passes through our lives. Some lessons are painful, some are painless, but all are priceless. And we invite you to stay tuned on ON 1240 for the Boston Celtics basketball. That's 8 o'clock, is it? Okay, and there's a pregame show before that, so I'm sure you just stay tuned and you can figure it out. So I'm Paul Eno. We'll be back next Sunday. Ben will be with us. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. See you next Sunday. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind 